We're continuing your studies in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and uh, today we're going to read from and study from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17 down to chapter 5 and verse 20. And in a minute, when I start reading, uh, we're going to read little section by little section uh, and then talk about it rather than read it through twice. So um, it's quite a long passage. I, I just want first, though, to just say a little bit about Ephesians. You'll remember that Ephesus, this church in Ephesus, which was on the uh, western side of present-day Turkey, Asia Minor became the center of Christianity after the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And one of the last of the original 12 disciples to leave Jerusalem was John, uh, who was probably about 10 years younger than the Lord himself. Uh, John had remained in Jerusalem, but after AD 70, he moved to Ephesus uh, and became, if you like, the pastor of the church there. It was from Ephesus that he was uh, exiled to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean where he received the Revelation, the uh, tremendous last book of the New Testament, which tells us much about the future, but I'm not sure it's going to be future for much longer. Uh, and uh, it, it um, is uh, all centered on Ephesus, which became the leading church in the whole Christian seen at the end of the first century. Interestingly, we have this letter that Paul's written to Ephesus now, but we also remember that John, when he was in Patmos and had that amazing series of revelations, in the letters he wrote to the churches, or the Lord asked him to, the first letter was to the same church. And sadly, in the AD 90s, which was when John was there, he had to say, you've left your first love. So in the letter that Paul wrote much earlier to this church, he's trying to establish what their first love should be, a love which puts Jesus first, and also a love which they may have had for Jesus at first. You can have it either way. And here in this lovely letter, he's opening up the whole way a church should operate and act and the individuals within it. It's a template for the ideal church and for the ideal Christians within that church. Now, it's very hard to live up to much of what Paul says, but we're studying it, we're looking at it, in order to try to discover what Jesus wants of us. He said when he was here, I will build my church. And this is part of his blueprint for building this church. In the earlier part of chapter 4, he's talking about being one body. Yes, there are certain gifts and responsibilities within that body. People have got different roles to play. That's quite understandable. But I want you all to be one. And in verse 16, which probably isn't on the screen, uh, he said, and it's the last verse before our passage, from him, Christ, the head, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So that's a good reminder of our first love, the love this church later on had lost. 
And uh, Paul here now in our passage tonight turns from just looking at the ideal church to actually remind Christians in Ephesus and us, us today of where we can go wrong. It's not an easy passage to study, but bear with us and uh, we'll look at uh, the way the Lord wants us to live our lives. So first of all, we're going to look at verses 17, 18, and 19, chapter 4 of, Ephesus, of Ephesians. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. He's speaking here in the middle of the first century. And we're privileged in our generation to have so many programs on television, on YouTube, by great academics on the life of the Roman Empire, particularly in this time. If you've watched Mary Baird, for example, or some of those others that highlight the excesses of the Roman Empire at about this time, it was a dreadful society. And this is exactly what Paul is reminding uh, here, the, these Christians in Ephesus about. But he puts a reason on the evil that's going on in society all around them. He says in verse 18, it's because of the ignorance within them due to the hardening of their hearts. In other words, they could be, and many of them were, open to the gospel, open to the fact that Jesus has come to give us a new life, a link with the spiritual and eternal, as we were thinking of this morning, and a change in the living conditions as we await that moment when we are going to be with the Lord. And uh, he's saying they've hardened their hearts. And I'm going to suggest we're living in a very, very similar day today. Now, I'm not going to go through all the things that people get up to. You know it as well as I do. But it's this hardening of hearts. You know, so many people, and those of you still at school and at work, will know that many people say, you believe in God? That's a bit crazy, isn't it? I don't believe in God, they say. And I'm going to suggest to you that that is not true. It's not that they don't believe in God. It's that they don't want to believe in God. They've hardened their hearts. They've got no interest in learning about the creator, the spiritual reality, the way that God wants us, his creation, to live our lives, and the peace we can have with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. They've got no interest in it. They don't want it. They've hardened their hearts. And so what Paul is describing as society in his day is very much the same as today. I think it's harder now than it was even when I was younger involved in Christian work as a young man. Where people would say, oh yes, I believe there's a God, but um, plenty of time yet. Uh, or, as some of us who are older will well know, of course I'm a Christian. I was born in Christian England. And uh, you don't ever hear that now. They've hardened their hearts because they don't want to believe in God. We will not have this man to reign over us, is the crying. So the heart of what Paul is saying 
is that there is the, the, the terrible possibility that ordinary human beings can actually put up a resistance to God and say, I don't want you. And this goes back to the way God made us with a freedom of will. I believe in free will. You see, when God created the human race, he didn't do so as a, dictat a dictatorial autocrat. He didn't do it as someone that wanted a lot of robots to love him because that's the only way they were programmed. When God created us, he created us as a father. And in Ephesians, and I'm sure you've already looked at this, in chapter 3, don't turn to it, I'll read it, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven on earth derives his name. God loves to be a father. He loves us to be his children. And uh, as any earthly parent will know, if you bring a child into this world, you make yourself extremely vulnerable. You make yourself vulnerable to tears and agony as well as joys and thrills, particularly when they grow up. And God has made himself vulnerable by giving humanity a freedom of choice. You know, Jesus showed this so often when he uh, talked to the Pharisees. They wouldn't listen. They didn't want to listen. Eventually, God said, I got, uh, Jesus said, I've got nothing else to say to you. You're not listening. You don't want to know. I'll go to the ordinary people. They're listening. They have hardened their hearts. And before he died, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of the hardness of their hearts, because they had resisted him. Nicodemus, maybe a little change, came to Jesus by night because he feared the animosity of his co-Pharisees. And Jesus said, you, you, you still don't understand, but at least you're here. Let me tell you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what it's all about, and I'm him. Think of the young ruler that came to the Lord. Came running. And the, uh, the Lord said, uh, well, you know, if you want to follow me, this, the, the, these are the sort of things that you must uh, take on board. But the young man had riches, and he wasn't prepared to put God the Lord before his riches. And he went away sad. Now we don't read that Jesus said, Oh, hold a minute, running down the street after him. Perhaps we can have another talk about this. Perhaps we can look at it another way. The man had made up his mind, and the Lord had left him to his decision. And Paul is saying here they've hardened their hearts. And they're living in the absolute wreck of their, of their lives and their, their sinfulness. And that's what people are doing today. I think the problem with our nation is, more than anything else, people don't want God. They don't want Jesus. They'll use the name as swear words, and that's the only interest they have. So <clears throat> that's what Paul is saying now. You're very different from society around. They've hardened their hearts. They don't want God, but you do. Now let's see what sort of people you should be. We'll now read from verses 20 to 24. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, 
which is being corrupted by its sinful, uh, deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul is saying, but you had that change of heart. You didn't harden your hearts. You wanted to know God. You wanted to come into a relationship with him. You saw that Jesus is the only way, and you've accepted Jesus Christ, and you've started to be taught by the Holy Spirit. He said, but I want you to remember this. This is, the, uh, th th this is a different order altogether to the ways of the world. We saw this morning that the physical universe that we know so well, and we know more and more as time goes on, uh, is very different from the spiritual universe, which is bigger by far. It was God, who is spirit, that spoke the word, and the physical universe came into being. God spoke, and time and matter and space and energy were created, and uh, life came from God himself. And in our Christian lives, in our following of Jesus, we are seeking to live that spiritual life in harmony with and in communion with God himself. We are a spiritual people. And one of the mistakes we've made even as evangelicals perhaps is to, to say, God, we want a better physical existence <laughs> with things. We want you to bless every part of our physical lives and the Lord doesn't always do that. But what we should be saying is, Lord, we want to be more spiritual. We want, a people, we want to be a people with a spiritual quality which is head and shoulders above the physical reality of society around us. We want to be people, to use scriptural words, of whom this world is not worthy. We each one have that spiritual link in our hearts. We have an immortal spirit. God has put eternity into our hearts. And we want that life to live and to be seen. And that really is the secret of all of the rest of this passage to be spiritual people with a power to overcome all that the world is throwing at us, around us. Not, Jesus is not there just to answer our prayers for more and more physical things and excitement and so on. If we have that, that's a bonus. We're spiritual people. Let me just read you something that I've, I've had with me and carry around a bit, but I haven't used it for a little while, but it seemed to be right tonight. A man called um, Cyprian was born in the year 210, not long after the Lord was here. Uh, he was martyred in September 258. He was made a bishop, a bishop of Carthage, in the year 249. In the third century, Cyprian, who later became Bishop of Carthage and was martyred for his faith, wrote a letter. It was addressed to his old friend Donatus, explaining what had happened to him. Listen to this. This is somebody like ourselves, a human being who became a Christian. This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden. Under the shadow of these vines, but if I climbed to some great mountain and looked out at the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high roads, pirates on the seas. In the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds. 
under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It is really a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet, in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. I have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and perse persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. That was a testimony from, uh, what, 1800 years ago. We're fighting the same battles. Let's move on. In verse 25, and I'm going to read right through to verse 7 of chapter 5, we have a section where Paul is telling us the sort of people we should not be and uh, the changes that should occur. So we're reading now from chapter 4 and verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only one is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, or impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. So there's a long list there. I don't think any of us are left out from one or two points on that list. And uh, Paul is addressing these people these Christians who have come into the church but are inclined to drift back into worldly attitudes and worldly standards. And he's saying, I want you to be different people altogether. You're a spiritual people, a holy people, pleasing to God. Let me just list those things again before we look at a couple of slides on the screen. Anger, 
No, sorry, truth. Tell the truth. This is what we've just read. I'm just summarizing it for you. Truth. Anger. We should have hon uh, honesty and diligence. Our speech should be pure. We shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be critical and lying, but rather have compassion. We should have love. We should be very careful with sexual behavior. We shouldn't have any greed. There shouldn't be any obscenity in our, in our speech. The idolatry, which is the love of selfish motivation, the love of self, putting self on the throne, that shouldn't be part of our lives. And we shouldn't be giving deceit to other people with empty words. That's a summary of what we've just read. Before we look any further, I just want to put something on the screen. We've got two slides. In the first one, now, I do apologize. I've done this here before. Some of you may remember it. But it's some time, and in any case, there are people here that haven't seen it before. And uh, <clears throat> it's just my attempt to show the way in which the Holy Spirit uh, works in our lives and brings about this change that Paul is talking about. And uh, <clears throat> I pictured our, our lives there as a wheel. And uh, <clears throat> in the center of our lives, the hub of our little lives, each one of us, is our spirit. Our immortal spirit, that which will live to it forever and make its, uh, its or, or go to be either judged or to be received by the Lord. It's our spirits. It's the very heart of our lives, the real you, the real me. But round the edge of the wheel, the circumference, there are other parts of our being. And I've just mentioned five of them there. Um, and I put them at the end of the spokes. So you've got your mind, what goes on up here? Or what should go on up here? <laughs> what does go on up here? Our body, the physical part of our existence and activity. Our emotional lives, the way in which uh, we react with feelings. Our personalities, down the bottom there. And then our wills, that part of us that determines what we want to do which we talked about just now when we said people don't want to believe in God. Now, what happens when we become a Christian? What happens when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord? And we'll put up the second slide. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence inside our spirits. The Holy Spirit doesn't take us over. We're not, as it were, erased. Uh, and uh, we just have God in our lives. We have the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, living in harmony with us. There is a communion between our spirits and the Holy Spirit. And uh, I've given you the Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 9, that if anybody does not have the Holy Spirit, they're not a child of God. I say that quite deliberately because some people say, well, you receive the Holy Spirit subsequent to your conversion. I don't believe that. I don't think Scripture preaches that. I'll come back to that point in a moment. But the, 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 the Scripture teaches me, and at least my understanding, is that when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord, we are converted. We are born again. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The past is gone. The new has come. Hallelujah. And that's when we receive the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our salvation. He's the evidence that we are of the Lord. 
Isn't it wonderful when you see somebody who perhaps has uh, not been interested in Christian things at all and they come to a meeting or whatever and become born again and you suddenly see the change. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart and the Holy Spirit has come in and come alongside their spirit. and We have the Holy Spirit living within us. But that, that is just the beginning. And there is much work to be done. And uh, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit then, for the rest of our lives, wants to move along the spokes of our lives and gradually take over sovereignty over all those other areas of our lives. And it's a battlefield. So, for example, in our minds, the Holy Spirit wants to come and take over the way our brains work. Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 2. By the renewing of your minds. And the sort of things that he works on there are thoughts, attitudes, decisions. And we in the Holy Spirit really take hold of the way we think. The attitudes we have. The thoughts that we allow to be entertained within our minds. The Holy Spirit wants to renew and to influence and affect for good the, the, the way we use our minds. And then there's our body, Galatians 2, verse 20. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. The past is gone. No, that's not the verse, sorry. It's, I am crucified with Christ, yet not I live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified. The body has been put to the cross. I've taken up my cross to follow the Lord, and I'm allowing the Lord's power, the Holy Spirit's power, to influence my physical being. And there we have uh, on the uh, behavior, habits, and lifestyle, the way we physically present ourselves to the world around us. The Holy Spirit wants to alter the physical life we live. In our emotions, I put 1 John 4, 19 there, which says we love because he first loved us. And uh, it's that ability to love as Jesus loves us that can only happen then to us when the love of God flows in us. It, that his love is shed abroad through the Holy Spirit in our emotional life. And through that love, we're able to work here, to live and walk in an emotional way unlike we had before. Feelings and uh, fear, uh, taking away fears and our responses emotionally. I think this sometimes is when people think that when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes into their emotional lives, taking away fears, giving them real joys. That's when they say, well, they really had a baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I said, no, you've already had the Holy Spirit. But suddenly, if he takes over the emotional side of our lives, you suddenly find yourself saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then you put your hand down because you're in the wrong sort of church. <laughs> and it's that emotional response which deals with the fears, which deals with the anger that brings all that sense of peace and joyfulness and, and love. The Holy Spirit wants to move from that emotional side of our lives in terms of our personalities. And that's the verse I tried to quote just now, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The past is gone, the new has come. Now, this is very important. I want to be very careful with this one. And I put down there our character, identity, and security, or insecurities. 
You know, I find this is one of the biggest problems we have in Christian pastoral work. People find that their personalities get in the way all so often. And for most of us, perhaps all of us, <coughs> to a greater or lesser extent, our personalities are formed in childhood. And so many people have a feeling of inferiority or not being loved or being rejected. And in the broken families that we have today, that's more and more prevalent. And it's a big barrier to people receiving the love of God. Uh, and the trouble is, the longer we go on without any healing, without any change, the more entrenched it became, becomes. You know, I love the uh, Psalm 23, like I'm sure most of us, all of us perhaps do. And it starts off by David the shepherd boy saying, uh, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David became one of the greatest kings we've ever known on earth. And... Uh, people like that. David was a great leader. He was a strong character. He was a man that other men, violent men, gave everything for. He was that sort of person. And you find that strong characters are not the people that look for advice and look for help. They've got it all, so they think. The Lord is my shepherd. And we ask ourselves, well, why did David, as strong as he was, a stronger character personality, why did he need to know that God was there as his shepherd? Well, you look at the life of David, the early life. And when uh, Samuel came to anoint the next king, and was, uh, Jesse, the father, was told, I want to see you at the feast that's going to be in the hall uh, with your sons. Seven of, David's well, seven of David's brothers were there, but David wasn't. And uh, Samuel stood in front of each of them in turn, the oldest to the youngest, except for David. And the Lord said to Samuel in his heart, this is not this king. You don't anoint this one. You don't anoint this one. And finally he got to the seventh, and Samuel turned to Jesse and said, I don't understand it. Have you got any other sons? Oh, yeah. There's the kid. Well, where is he? Who was out looking after the sheep? The greatest thing event in that family's life at that time, and David wasn't even allowed to come in. A little bit later, he was sent by his dad to take some food from home to his uh, three of his older brothers fighting nearby in Saul's army, King Saul's army. What sort of reception did he get? You know. You'd think that soldiers in the army then would have been as glad as I'm sure they are today to get supplies from home in comparison to army rations. What do they say? You wicked boy, get back to your sheep. You're only here to see the battle. If you want to plumb the depth of some of our own depression and anxieties, you turn to David's Psalms. You see, he plumbed the very depths of despair as, we, uh, as, as well as the heights of praise and worship. He knew all about being rejected as a child. In one of his psalms he says, even my family will not eat at my table. But he knew that God was always there. The Lord is my shepherd. When everyone else loves me. 
And in the Holy Spirit's work, he wants to take those broken personalities that we might have, those wounds that we may have held for years. And the trouble is sometimes our insecurities become our securities. We hang on to them. The Lord wants to deal with them. And he wants to change them. Holy Spirit's work. And then finally, the will. The Holy Spirit wants to take up control of our wills. Luke 22, verse 42. Humility, availability, and uh, submissiveness. And uh, the verse there is the Lord himself. Father, may this cup pass from me, but not my will. Yours be done. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. But before we leave this, we saw in our reading that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He might come along those spokes and begin to really move parts of our lives, but we can tell the Holy Spirit, as it were, to get lost, sadly. And we allow our own instincts and inclinations to take over. And then the Holy Spirit retreats down those spokes. I don't believe we ever leave that, lose the Holy Spirit. He's always there. But he comes back to his throne room at the center of our lives. I remember some years ago we had a, um, a police constable, young fellow, in Bridgewater, where I live, and a lovely keen Christian. He used to have our young people that we had as well. And uh, sometimes if we'd gone ice skating or up to a rally on a Saturday night, I was bringing the youngsters back in the minibus, and uh, Chris was on patrol, if maybe, with those little panda cars I used to have. If he saw the minibus coming back through the town, 10, 11 o'clock at night, he put his blue light on and chased us down through the town until we stopped. Like, Chris, don't do that. Everyone, everyone's looking. Uh, he was a great fellow. His marriage fell apart. And he began to fall apart. His God was promotion in the police service. One day, a year or two after, he fell away from the Lord. I had coffee with him, a local cafe. And in conversation, I wasn't there to bully him or anything like that. I just said, Chris, how is it between you and Jesus now? He looked at me a bit thoughtful and said, David, there are some things you never lose. He knew that he was still loved by the Lord. But we shouldn't get into that position. We shouldn't grieve the Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to take over all these parts of our lives and to be the people that Paul's describing here we should be. And we become people that God can use to make a difference and to change this world. We must very quickly move on. Verse 8, chapter 5. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, Wake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So in other words, we're not under law, we're not under a load of rules and regulations. We're free in the Lord, not to do what we want, but to do what he wants. And ministers to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, living in our lives, taking over bit by bit, sanctifying us as we pass on through life. And then we're living in the light, and that's where the Lord wants us to be, and 
Doesn't this world need those today who are living in the light? Who can see the light and the glory of God in your face and mine. And then finally, verse 15. Be very, uh, 15 to 20, sorry. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart of the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us in these days not to be those who have left our first love, but to know the power of the Holy Spirit surging through our lives, bringing us into conformity with his will. Day by day as he leads us in whatever he has for us to do, and we're all different and we'll all have different areas of ministry, as Paul has already discussed earlier in the chapters. And may the Lord bless you that in these days we will be the people he can once again use to bring about a great blessing to those around. May the Lord bless you. Do you want me to close in prayer? Or are you, are you coming back up again? One more